passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This post-wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister and putting away more money for retirement. Because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Hi, I'm Kerry Von Erich, and this is my brother Kevin. You can get a hot-looking Von Erich t-shirt like this. Each shirt has Kerry, Mike, or myself printed on the front. Or you can get one of these shirts that says taken by force from Kerry, Kevin, or Mike Von Eric. Call now and order my t-shirt. No, buy mine. No, buy mine. As the long-awaited release of the Iron Claw occurs, a new generation is going to learn of the Von Eric family's story, tragedy, and fate. For others, it's revisiting one of wrestling's darkest tales that even Hollywood had to downplay and temper the level of grief and casualties. To explore the Adkisson Von Erich family is to undertake an exercise in the dangerous cocktail of fame, fortune, drugs, ambition, disappointment, pressure, and death. It's hard to sugarcoat a story that saw five of six brothers dead before the age of 35 and the sole survivor in Kevin, who miraculously has lived as full of a life as possible surrounded by his family perhaps compensating for the lives his brothers failed to enjoy. David Von Erich was in Japan on a two-week tour with an American wrestling show. He was found lying across his bed early this morning. Searchers found the body of 23-year-old Mike Von Erich this morning near Louisville Lake. Chris went into the woods behind his family ranch, and just like his brother Mike, he took his life. Shocking news for wrestling fans this morning. Pro wrestler Kerry Von Erich has apparently taken his own life. He was one of the members of the famous Von Erich wrestling family, Kerry was found yesterday by his father near a farmhouse on the family ranch near Dallas. This is uh, only the latest tragedy for the family of six brothers. Five of them are now dead. If Kerry's death is ruled a suicide, it will be the third suicide in the family in the last six years. Friends say Von Erich was suffering from a drug addiction and depressed over the deaths of his brothers. Kerry Von Erich was scheduled to wrestle tonight in Dallas against the Angel of Death. Jack Adkisson, a.k.a. Fritz von Erich, was the central nervous system of the family. 
a jockeying like patriarch that set the tone of ruthless ambition and an unwavering desire to meet one's goals instilled in his children while wrapped up in a cloth of religion for the adoring public to fawn over the all-American family. After attempts to play football at the highest level, Adkisson was relegated to the Edmonton Eskimos, a team that has since abandoned that name due to societal advancements of the Canadian Football League. While his CFL career was a footnote, his proximity to promoter Stu Hart was the legacy of that foray to Canada and his entryway into the industry that gave life to the character Fritz von Erich, but quite the opposite for the man behind the persona. The first in a macabre series of tragedies occurred in 1959, when Jack and his wife Doris were stationed in Niagara Falls and working in the Buffalo Territory, where Fritz had an ownership stake. It was here that their firstborn, Jackie Jr., died in a freak occurrence where the child was playing outside and was electrocuted before falling into a puddle and pronounced dead at the age of six. What degree of impact and psychological damage Jackie Jr.'s death had on Jack and Doris is unanswerable. But such emotional scars don't disappear with time. They remain, and they cut deep. In the era, mental health was not a dinner table discussion. And often, when trying to explain the unexplainable, the only answer for this generation was relying on their religion and that God had a plan that they could not comprehend. Kevin was just shy of his second birthday when his older brother died, leaving him with barely a memory of his brother. Something as difficult to grapple with as the juxtaposition of holding a lifetime's worth with his younger brothers. David was born in 1958, less than a year old when Jackie Jr. died. Nearly a year after that, Carrie entered the world in February of 1960, followed by Mike in 1964, and finally Chris in 1969. One of the quotes in the trailer that jumped out was when Jack was explaining how Carrie was his favorite, followed by Kevin and David. But the rankings can always change. This was not hyperbole or a line to conjure added drama. It was well known among the sons that their father had a hierarchy and every day his affections were up for grabs. While pro wrestling was presented as being Jack's true religion, there was a time when he was a fledgling wrestler that was ready to call it a day, relocate to Texas and exit the industry. Fate had other plans and Jack ended up becoming a power player in the Texas scene and would partner with and later succeed Ed McLemore. McLemore started as the Sportatorium's concession director for boxing and wrestling events at the venue and was running the entire thing by 1940. In 1966, Adkisson joined McLemore in Southwest Sports, but it was a short-lived partnership as McLemore died three years later and Adkisson inheriting the company. Texas was divided into unique sections run by Adkisson, Paul Bosch, and Joe Blanchard. Adkisson had firm ties with the NWA through 1986, while Bosch exited his membership in 1981. Blanchard was under Von Erich's Southwest Sports banner until breaking off in 1978. The shift from Jack Adkisson to Fritz Von Erich came in 1954, after he struggled under the former and accelerated with the Nazi-inspired heel that played off the still-fresh effects of World War II. He is wrestling tonight the mighty German... Fritz von Erich, who at this moment is asking many questions and making accusations against Watson. But I'm afraid with Marciano as the official tonight, he had better be on a little of his better behavior if that is possible. The name was inspired by a family link to the name Fritz, while Eric was his mother's maiden name. Adkisson became a commodity, both domestically and in Japan, with achievements that included setting the St. Louis Gate record in October of 1964 against Luthez, a December 1966 match with Shohei Giant Baba that sold out Budokan Hall, and establishing the Iron Claw in the country in that match, and drawing over 26,000 fans to Texas Stadium as he challenged NWA champion Dory Funk Jr. in 1972. 
Fritz von Erich rebranded himself as a born-again Christian and blanketed his image with the American flag, a well-to-do family that served the Lord, and in Texas, that worked really, really well. But Fritz had his eye toward his progeny and took a step back from his in-ring career to focus on his role as promoter, and over the next phase of his career, his business was his children, and his children became his business. The territory became his pulpit, and the idols were his sons, primarily Kevin, David, and Carrie, with others to follow. This led to resentment and claims of nepotism, but it became clear the kids were the stars and would be the pipeline for a younger audience making world-class the in-thing once the territory took off after 1982 and drawing a large percentage of female fans. The ingredients for the surge were not limited to the Von Erich kids. The distribution was key, with a partnership that saw the show broadcast on the Christian Broadcasting Network-owned KXTX Channel 39 beginning in 1981, and the hiring of producer Mickey Grant, who brought the production values to the state of the art in the industry. It included multi-camera shooting, camera operators inside of the ring, and venturing outside of the arena for personality-driven vignettes and segments to give the viewer a 360-degree view of the stars on television, both literally and figuratively. Producers for World Class included Keith Mitchell, who would have a long career as a producer in WCW and, most recently, in All Elite Wrestling. The glue of the program was radio and television institution Bill Mercer, who had risen to fame calling football and baseball when he added pro wrestling as a side gig. Back to throw a Staubach. He waits, he waits, he runs to his left, being pursued all the way back to the five-yard line, coming back to the ten, back off to his right, gets a block from Manders, throws the ball downfield, relieves the 35, then he moves out to the 40, and it's a first down at the 40-yard line of Dallas, a great play by Staubach. Mercer called games at North Texas for 34 years, was among the voices of the Dallas Texans of the AFL, began calling Dallas Cowboys games in 1965, including the famous Ice Bowl game of 1967, and started with wrestling on KRLDFM and Channel 4, where he was making $75 per week. Mercer began working for Fritz when he needed a voice for the Saturday night shows on Channel 11. During the early to mid-80s boom, World Class would be airing on dozens of affiliates around the country, with a sign of things to come through the proliferation of cable. This placed the Dallas-based promotion into markets that included Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, and Minneapolis, and threatened the imaginary borders of rival promoters. But the meat and potatoes were the television product that elevated the Von Erichs as the hometown heroes chasing the elusive NWA World Heavyweight Championship, which had escaped Fritz. This became the compass the territory followed, with the question of which son would reach the ultimate destination. The booking of Gary Hart brought them to Christmas night in 1982 and a transformative angle that dropped the gasoline on the flame and led to the boom. In the lead-up to Ric Flair defending the championship against Kerry Von Erich inside of a steel cage, fans were given the power to vote for the special referee and opted to go with the Von Erich family friend, Michael Hayes. Earlier in the night, Hayes and Terry Gordy needed a last-minute replacement when Buddy Roberts missed his flight in an angle, prompting David Von Erich to step in as the three won the territory's newly created six-man tag titles and showcased the bond among the Von Erichs and Freebirds. Inside the cage, the moment was etched in everyone's memory. Hayes going out the door. Here comes Rick Flair again. Oh, Kerry Von Erich hit in the head by the cage door. As Gordy threw it too, and Kerry Von Erich smashed by the cage door, leaning over the rope. With official David Manning assuming the rest of the match, he waved off the bout minutes later, with Kerry unable to continue, and the championship hopes slipping through the family's fingers on behalf of the Freebirds' actions. It lit the territory on fire, and for the next two years, the Sportatorium in Dallas became the hot Friday night tradition as Devon Erichs vowed revenge. The big shows of the era were the Star Wars events that saw world-class running Reunion Arena four times in 1983, and another three times the year after. The biggest shows were reserved for the Cotton Bowl. 
It was on the back of the Von Erickson Freebirds program that these shows were anchored, along with the Friday night cards, which were taped every other week to air on Sundays on Channel 39 and syndicated throughout the country. This was in addition to the Fort Worth tapings that were held each Monday at the Will Rogers Coliseum and airing on Channel 11. So what went wrong? If the rise of world class was marked by a youthful demographic growing up with the Von Erich kids, then the fall of the territory were those same fans that were unable to cope with the macabre specter of death among those same children. On February 10th, 1984, the phone call came. In pro wrestling, this term was frequently used when it rang at an unusual hour and was met with a serious tone. And usually, all that was required was the name, and the rest was self-explanatory. In this instance, it was David. David Von Erich was in Japan on a three-week tour with an American wrestling show. He was found lying across his bed early this morning. Cause of death, an apparent heart attack. However, an autopsy will be performed before the body is flown back to Dallas sometime tomorrow. David Von Erich, dead at the age of 25. Over the days and weeks, numerous reasons and theories were posited, with the family maintaining that David died due to enteritis, an inflammation of the small intestine. Those who found Von Erich's body included Frank Bruiser Brody Goodish, who relayed information that he flushed drugs down the toilet. In the 2006 documentary by Brian Harrison on World Class, longtime family friend and official David Manning confirmed that Von Erich was on prescribed pain medication. The Von Erichs always stated enteritis was listed on the death certificate. However, when journalist Irv Mushnick was writing a 1988 feature on the family, Fritz reneged on his initial promise to show the certificate to Mushnick. They told about five different stories. They said a ruptured intestine from a, a hard kick in the ring. They said, you know... It was a, it was a, an infection. And in fact, as my reporting for the, uh, the penthouse article established, it was, it was a placidil overdose. Placidil is a sedative. It actually is the same sedative that Mike, uh, with tragic irony would OD on intentionally, uh, a, a few years later. However, when Skip Hollinsworth of D Magazine profiled the Von Erichs that same year, that reporter relayed that he was shown the death certificate from the U.S. Embassy in Japan that did list acute enteritis. David was 25 years old and left behind a wife. Lost in the sea of tragedies in the family was the couple's lone child, Natasha Zoanna, who died before the age of one in a tragic crib death in 1978. The death of David was treated like the passing of an iconic figure in North Texas. Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter was working as a reporter during this era in Wichita Falls and has shared that the media missed the boat on the story, undervaluing the magnitude of David's death before covering it properly for the antsy public that was openly grieving in malls and other public spaces. The funeral was estimated to have been attended by more than 3,000 people, including luminaries of the pro wrestling fraternity. David was seen as the frontrunner to become the first Von Erich to hold the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship and was set to challenge Ric Flair after David had just held the Missouri Heavyweight Championship, typically an audition for the person on the periphery of getting the major run with the big belt. World Class presented one of the most unique shows of its era, with a tribute special to David, featuring as close to out-of-character reflections as you'd see in 1984, including comments from the family's rival, Michael Hayes. This will be our only public statement about it. And I guess really the only thing to say is it was a tragedy because obviously his family and his friends and those that loved him suffered a great deal more than we did. But we feel a loss, too, because we've lost a great warrior. And I know that might be hard to accept coming from us because we fought him so many times. But the one thing that he did do is he fought what he believed in. And even though what we believe in never agreed and it never will, 
you have to respect somebody that fights what they believe for. And he always fought what he believed for. And it's a shame. And it is a tragedy. But I can't sit here and tell you that the feud will end between the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. It never will end because there's only room for one of us here. Sadly, this became a template in the industry when other tragedies struck Owen Hart and Eddie Guerrero. While one has to sympathize with Fritz's grappling with the loss of a second son, it is hard to dismiss the wheels openly turning in his promoter's brain of keeping the train on the tracks and the business booming. In a segment that aired on television, Fritz is seen grieving with his sons and remembering David when he segues into his observation that younger son Mike is the image of David, and as one Von Erich was gone, another was set to take his place. The pressure placed on Mike was daunting. You got to remember that that Mike is coming on and coming on strong. And if there ever was a, a an image of someone, it's Mike. When you look at him, he looks exactly like David. These childhood pictures, Bill. Um, we look back into this day at the same age. I can't tell David from Mike. Yeah. And the odd thing is, is the disposition and the talent, the wrestling and athletic talent that's there. Mike will, after a couple of years, he will step into David's uh, category. So when you ask me, well, does life go on? Or what are we going to do with uh, without Dave? We're going to miss him, and he'll we'll never forget David. He'll he'll it's like the wind. His name will go on because when you look at at my sons, you're looking at people that now will become totally and completely awesome. With the loss of David, affectionately referred to as the Yellow Rose, the bloom was coming off in the wake of his death as it rocked the family, the company, and the audience. Decades later, Kevin would state a part of him died when David did and was the first blow of many, having been too young to remember Jackie Jr.'s death. Following David's passing, the family catapulted the grieving into commerce with the story of Carrie going for the prize that was supposed to be David's, the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. On May 6th of 1984, the Parade of Champions became the David Von Erich Memorial in front of 32,123 fans at Texas Stadium and a gate above $100,000 to see Carey reach that destiny and unseat Flair for the championship under the scorching Texas heat. Here's Flair from the ropes, wants to toss Carey across. Carey's got it, here's the Nelson pin. Two, Carey! The Dream Cup yes! It was emblematic of the Von Erich story, the NWA championship in their hands under the shadow of death. The movie altered timelines to fit its constraints and presented Carrie's highest of highs and lowest of lows in a singular night, winning the championship and going out for a late night motorcycle ride that ended in the destruction of his foot and body. In fact, Carrie's crash didn't occur until June of 1986, more than two years after the NWA title victory. A title reign that lasted a mere 18 days and Flair beginning his third run as champion on May 24th in Japan. The company was still running well in 1984, but the fractures were setting in after David's death. They ran the Cotton Bowl in October and drew approximately 12,000 to the stadium off the backs of the Von Erichs feud with the turncoat Chris Adams and his partner Gino Hernandez. The Cotton Bowl event saw Kevin plead to Adams to dump Gary Hart and be welcomed back to the babyface side. 
but they shot a big angle where Kevin was attacked by Adams. This led to Thanksgiving night at Reunion Arena, with Kevin taking on Adams, and a Christmas night show with the two having a lumberjack match, along with Kerry going for the NWA Championship in a rematch with Flair, and both shows drawing over 15,000 fans. Mike Von Erich was barely out of the gate in his wrestling career when David died, but given his surname and the company running so many shows, it was a guarantee he would be thrust into the deep end and well beyond his capabilities, as he lacked the natural athletic gifts of Kevin, David, and Kerry. In some ways, his story is the saddest, as one can argue that the older three may have found themselves in pro wrestling regardless of who their father was, and at the very least would be competitive athletes and forced to navigate the trappings that those industries see. In contrast, Mike and later Chris would never have entered the front door of a wrestling school without the last name, much less garner the attention and fame without it. You cannot accurately assess what-if questions, but to a person, those involved in the scene have acknowledged the impossible task that the two youngest sons were attempting and the pitfalls that they were invariably going to encounter. Kevin, David, Carey, and now they debut in just a few minutes of Mike Von Erich. Well, Kevin, you remember back when you uh, started out, how you felt. Well, I sure do, Bill. You know, I'm the oldest brother, and this is kind of a special deal for me. Little Mike here. Little Mike, I say, is a big old stud. But tonight, I think he's going to show his colors. He's a Von Eric right down to the wire. How much you giving it, Kerry? Bill, I'm not going to give Akbar too long, but you know Mike is the best amateur out of, out of all three of us. He's hey, they put a little pressure on you. You're the best of them all now, huh? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm not the best there is. I'm sure I'm going to try to follow my father and my brother's footsteps so he's just shy he's just shy he's, he's gonna do great tonight we're gonna toss it in the tub and see how the horse chews the cabbage tonight throw him in the ring that's right we're gonna let him go good luck mike i know there's a little bit of uh, butterflies in there but uh, it'll be fun in august 1985 mike suffered a severe shoulder injury on a tour of israel where world class was exceptionally popular he returned to texas and worked one match at the sportatorium before undergoing shoulder surgery and contracting toxic shock syndrome a rarity among men causing a 107 degree fever leaving mike on the brink of death mike would survive but not without the ramifications of such a high fever and its obvious effects on his mental faculties he returned to the ring in July of 1986 with the tagline as the living miracle. But those around him saw the impact of his ordeal, his inability to cope, and the square peg in a round hole misery of trying to become the athlete his older brothers were. The company's last major show at the Cotton Bowl was in October 1985, where the show drew 26,000 fans for a double hair versus hair main event with Kevin and Kerry defeating Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. One year later, attendance was under 6,000 and under four in 1987. We had scheduled about with Gino Hernandez. However, we've reached a milestone, a sad moment in world-class championship wrestling. Gino Hernandez is dead. He was found this past week in his apartment. For 10 years, he has given us, this brash young man, an excitement, a frustration at times, but a personality that beamed across the television sets and the arenas that we view and that we watch world-class championship wrestling. In 1986, Gino Hernandez became the latest casualty of world-class, dead at age 28, and a noted cocaine abuser who was known throughout the territory for having a candy dish on display in his home filled to the brim with powder. Later that year, Kerry suffered his motorcycle wreck and would be gone for eight months, returning in February 1987 and keeping it hidden that a portion of his foot had been amputated, a combination of the devastating effects of the wreck and pushing himself far too fast to recover when the family business relied on his presence. By the time he turned 27, Kerry's most productive years as an athlete were in the rearview mirror and the lingering effects of the injury led to enhanced self-medication and the beginning of a downward spiral that would hit rock bottom six years later. Sitting here with Kerry in his hospital room at Baylor University Medical Center, 
Tomorrow will be three weeks since Carrie's accident. As you all know, Carrie was involved in a motorcycle accident and suffered several injuries, including a fractured dislocation of his ankle, a lacerated knee, and a posterior dislocation of his hip. His foot was in really pretty pathetic shape when he came in, and we were all worried that he really had a very good chance of losing his foot. However, with a surgical team of Howard Moore and Fred Lester and their aggressive surgery, they have saved Gary's foot. We have seen pretty remarkable recovery over this last three-week period. Gary's due to leave the hospital soon, which is much quicker than any of us thought was possible. Thank you, Dr. Stucker, for all that. But I'll tell you what, I want to thank everybody out there um, for your support and for your prayers. A lot of big things have happened since I've came into the hospital. One of the greatest things, again, thanks Dr. Sutker, Mike, my brother. We'll be back July 4th for the big spectacular. Mike's descent continued into 1987 as he was arrested twice for DUI. The second when he was found with prescription pills in his possession. Days later, Mike went missing. And after the discovery of a suicide note, a hunt was on to find him. He was found dead on April 16, 1987, after an overdose of alcohol mixed with Placidil. Von Eric's family members gathered near Pilot Knoll Park this morning for the very painful news. Deputies escorted Doris Atkinson back to a patrol car shortly after searchers found the body of her 23-year-old son, Mike Von Eric. A police officer and his dog discovered the wrestler's fully clothed body in a heavily wooded area near Louisville Lake. The family had reported the wrestler missing on Monday, two days after his arrest on drunk driving and drug charges. Von Eric was last seen Saturday night. Inside the car, investigators saw a handwritten note. It said, Mom and Dad, I am in a better place. I'll be watching. The note was unsigned. His final message to those he left behind was that he was going to see his brother David and described himself as a fuck-up. By now, the audience was starting to feel beyond uneasy and losing trust in this company. In 1985, the wool was pulled over their eyes with the introduction of cousin Lance Von Eric, journeyman wrestler Ricky Vaughn, who was presented to the world-class audience as the son of Fritz's former partner, Waldo Von Eric, real name Walter Paul Sieber. It was Fritz's call, and he overruled the family to introduce a new Von Eric to meet the demand of the public. It is certainly a tremendous day, and uh, I think it's a good chance here to uh, and time to uh, welcome in Lance Von Eric, Waldo's son, and uh, the cousin of Mike, and your nephew. It's great, great to, it's great to be in the Lone Star State. I'm uh, going to be here for today and tomorrow, and I'm going to have some wrestling I've got to take care of in Europe, and I'll be back in the next few weeks to help out the family. But to Waldo, especially and myself, thought Lance is ready to assume the Von Eric name. We told nobody who he was. But he's now the new Northwest Heavyweight Champion. He's ready. When Vaughn ventured to a rival group run by former world-class booker Ken Mantell, the family disowned him on its programming and revealed he was not a real cousin, and the audience felt duped after having been lied to. His last name is Vaughn, and I think his first name is William William Vaughn, and he is from Dallas, right in Dallas, Texas. Because of several past recent events, our association with Mr. Vaughn has been officially terminated. He will probably attempt to use the image that the Vonerick name has created for him, but he can no longer legally use the copyrighted, registered name of the Von Erich family. It's been registered for over 30 years, the name Von Erich. And I don't plan to mention this boy's name again. 
The audience saw the condition of Mike after his bout with toxic shock syndrome. Unlike David's death, which was a gut punch no one saw coming, Mike's was a slow descent of a man fighting for his health and well-being and marred by arrests, erratic behavior, and ultimately succumbing to unbearable pressure and ending his life. The public was starting to question why so many young men were dying at this alarming rate. Just three weeks after Mike's death, the company staged its Parade of Champions event at Texas Stadium, now in honor of both David and Mike. It was a card that Mike had been scheduled to wrestle on, and it just felt off to the public, with a mere 5,900 fans attending to see Kevin Von Erich defend the world-class championship against Nord the Barbarian, a scaffold match, and the final match on the docket being a six-woman mud pit match. The line was forever crossed on Christmas night of 1987, when the company merely drew 2,600 people to Reunion Arena, and those in attendance saw arguably the most exploitive angle in the territory's history. Going to show you right now on this live update exactly what happened at Reunion Arena last night that has left Fritz von Erich critically hospitalized as we speak. Uh, I have spoken with the von Erich boys, Kevin and Carrie both. They have assured me that they are not going to miss any wrestling appearances and that uh, they will certainly help us uh, through this and bring us any information that they have. But in so promising, they admit to me tonight that this one's still too close to call. This is scary. The people that did this to my father. Wait just a minute, Kerry. There's plenty of time for this later. Just right now. You're right. Let's just get dead will. Our father will be okay. Folks, don't worry. We'll be all right. Following an attack by the Freebirds, Fritz dropped down to the mat, and although it was never identified on air as a heart attack, it left the audience with the cliffhanger of whether they were bearing witness to yet another Von Erich tragedy. It was repulsive in tone, execution, and its handling, allowing even the strongest supporters of the family to shake their heads in disbelief. It was playing with a level of emotional gravity that fans did not buy tickets to endure or support. Then there was Chris. I got something to say. After what happened to me the other night with Matt Bourne, I was humiliated. I didn't want to leave my parents' ranch. I felt like I let y'all down. Let me finish. But then I remembered something my father and my brothers always taught me. When you fall off a horse, you get right back on. Now I'm here to see my brother Curie give Matt Bourne what he deserves. And I know he will. But with Percy Pringle in that ring, he never will. Born September 30th, 1969, he was his most impressionable during the heyday of his older brothers who doubled his heroes with a desire to follow in their footsteps. Sadly, he would in the darkest of ways. He was asthmatic, with family members believing the prednisone medication affected his physical growth as he was incredibly undersized for the demands of the job in this era at 5'5 and 165 to 175 pounds. Chris debuted on June 22, 1990, one month before Carey joined the World Wrestling Federation and in the dying days of the USWA World Class Alliance. He feuded with Percy Pringle III, William Moody, who would later become Paul Bear, and worked with a young Steve Austin, who was one of the few bright spots in the territory. With Jerry Jarrett being brought in to straighten out the business, he was lukewarm on the Von Erichs, believing their best days were in the past and did not see the upside in pushing Chris. Chris was frail and susceptible to injuries, which cut his in-ring career short. There was no question regarding Chris's desire to make it, but his body didn't provide him the tools to match that desire and failed him repeatedly. This frustration and a frightening track record of his brothers ending their lives gave Chris the only conclusion he could make sense of, succumbing to a self-inflicted gunshot wound on September 12, 1991, with the body discovered by his mother Doris and brother Kevin. He was 21. 
Now Fritz von Erich has but two sons left in his dynasty. Some call it the curse of the Iron Claw. But the von Erichs don't look at life that way. You survive because you're human beings and because life goes on. The business continued to fall, with booker Ken Mantell leaving to start another Texas operation in 1987 and follow-up bookers including Bruiser Brody, David Manning, and Eric Embry. Mantell's Wild West Wrestling would be brought into the fold of World Class, and Fritz would cash out his interest in World Class, allowing for Kevin and Kerry to hold minority stakes, with Jerry Jarrett entering as a controlling member of the new World Class, which would migrate into the USWA and cross-promoting between Texas and Tennessee. The partnership ceased in 1990 as World Class limped to its demise. On July 16, 1990, Kerry Von Erich made his debut as the Texas Tornado in the WWF, with the Von Erich name slowly phased out. The writing was on the wall when Kerry finally left Texas. Within six weeks, he was Intercontinental Champion, defeating Kurt Hennig at SummerSlam, holding the title for three months before Hennig regained it. Everyone in the World Wrestling Federation learned that when the Texas Tornado says something, he backs it up. Now, Mr. Perfect, you can rat and rave and scream and shout and kick your feet, but it's back in the line for you. The smell of victory feels so good. There was a period when Kerry was seen as a candidate to be a national star in the WWF with the physique and physical charisma that drew audiences to his personal demeanor and aw shucks vibe that would be reminiscent a decade later through Jeff Hardy. By 1990, he was clinging to a career that his body was demanding he let go of. Drug problems persisted and adding the daunting road schedule of the WWF was only accelerating his breaking point. One such stretch included Kerry wrestling three times at a marathon-length television taping in December, followed by house shows in Ohio, Minnesota, and Montreal over the next three days. It was taxing on all the performers, but especially for one concealing a foot amputation and relying on drugs to persevere. His lone appearance on a WrestleMania card was in March of 1991 at the seventh installment, beating Dino Bravo. Kerry stayed with the WWF until the summer of 1992. The run included Kerry requiring rehab after being suspended by the company for a forgery offense on prescription medication. In February of 1993, an arrest warrant was issued for Kerry after a January arrest for possessing 1.3 grams of a substance believed to be cocaine. Already on probation, Kerry suspected there was no escaping jail for this last offense. It was hardly Kerry's first brush with the law after an arrest in June of 1983 at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport coming home from Mexico where drugs were discovered and underscored a prevalent culture among the Von Erich children. Kerry landed a misdemeanor charge for marijuana possession. Two weeks after his 33rd birthday, Kerry ventured to his father's ranch and retrieved a gun that he gave as a Christmas present to Fritz in 1991 and drove out on the property, ending his life with a gunshot to his chest and leaving behind two children. Kerry was found yesterday by his father near a farmhouse on the family ranch near Dallas. This is only the latest tragedy for the family of six brothers. Five of them are now dead. If Kerry's death is ruled a suicide, it will be the third suicide in the family in the last six years. As Kevin would repeat over the years, he used to be the oldest brother, and now he wasn't even a brother. Wrestling made and destroyed the Von Erichs, with the remnants felt long after so many of Jack and Doris's children took their final breaths. The tragedies forced Doris to place blame on Jack, with the couple ending their 42-year marriage in 1992. Jack was left alone, while Kevin navigated a path that no individual should need to endure, reconciling the loss of all his brothers while welcoming four children into the world with his wife Pam. Jack's final years were not kind, with brain and lung cancer riddling his faculties and Kevin sharing several horror stories of his relationship with his father in those final years. And keep this in mind, was that he had brain cancer. And that was number one, that he was not himself. I know Dad loved me. He loved me a lot. I know he did, dang it. But uh, he did say to me one time, he said, he 
said, you'd kill yourself too if you had the guts, but you don't have the guts your brothers had. I thought, man, Dad wants me to kill myself, you know. And I said, no, Dad, it takes guts to stay here. The easy way is to, to kill yourself. A few weeks before he died, Dad pulled a forty-four on me. I thought he was going to shoot me with a forty-four, And the same gun that Kerry had killed himself with, forty-four Magnum. He, he pulled a, a gun on me, and I looked in his eyes. I thought, like, he's pointing a gun at me, but he's died. But then I looked in his eyes, and I thought, oh, Dad's not on you know, he loved me. I know my dad loved me, but uh, just being around me, I guess, reminded him of all of his other sons that weren't there. And so I, I, I can pretty much excuse anything for that. The lone son's love for his father never wavered, even in the darkest of scenarios. The effects of cancer ended Jack's life in September of 1997 when he was 68. Kevin sold the world-class tape library to the WWE in 2005, allowing a new generation to have access to the territory through its 24-7 on-demand service and later the WWE Network. The relationship led to Kevin appearing on an October 2005 homecoming edition of Raw in Dallas. Surrounded by a who's who of legends in the company, it was Kevin who received a gigantic reaction when introduced and later applied the Iron Claw to Rob Conway. In 2009, the entire family was inducted into the WWE's Hall of Fame when WrestleMania 25 was staged in Houston, Texas. In October of 2015, Doris Juanita Smith, formerly Adkison, died at the age of 82 after spending her final years living with Kevin and their extended family in Kauai in Hawaii. Recently, the family uprooted from Hawaii and made the trek back to Texas, where they are stationed today. There are few glimmers of hope from such a tragic tale as the Von Erich story elicits. It forces an examination of the culture surrounding fame, drugs, and pressure, all mixed with youth and men who were barely scratching the surface of the lives they were set to live out. This is not the story of a curse, because that would suggest that their fates were predetermined, and unlike their vocation, that was not the case. The sons of Jack Adkison were not perfect and fell into many of the trappings that fame at a young age forced upon stars. They made reckless choices and were held to a standard and expectation that few sons could live up to. It was a cocktail of disaster and one that developed into a deadly pattern. While it was Mike who was given the moniker, with time and tragedy, such a constant, the living miracle is Kevin, who has said goodbye too many times for any brother or son to endure. Kevin put it best when interviewed for the 2006 documentary by Brian Harrison. The bad thing about grief is that it doesn't get better. It gets worse. You just learn to deal with it. Out of all my kids, they were uh, good kids, good athletes. They're all out here anymore, but I think of each and every one of them every day. And if there's God up there, I thank him for giving me those fine boys. And if I had to do anything over again, starting all over, the one thing I'd like to do is raise those kids again. Most fun I ever had in my life. That last thing was very, very good to me. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.